Welcome to The Safety Break, the Whitewater Rescue Podcast. We're here to share stories of real river accidents and rescues and find expert advice on how to solve the problems you might encounter in the Whitewater River environment. I'm your host, Jack Diddy, an emergency medicine physician, whitewater paddler, and wilderness medicine educator. Together, I hope we can celebrate successful rescues and learn from our mistakes in a supportive environment. If you have a story to share of a non-fatal accident or rescue, send me an email at thesafetybreak at gmail.com or contact me on our Facebook page, The Safety Break. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button and follow us on social media. I hope you learned something valuable in the show. dark wasn't even aware that I was myself that I that I had a body it's almost like I was this disembodied consciousness but I was so calm and relaxed it was really dark really quiet I couldn't hear anything and I had no real intention to come back or go anywhere I was just totally at peace and (laughs) pretty happy just to chill there for a while, you know? Things started coming online. It was really, was really weird. The first thing was being able to hear the the auditory feedback. And then that kind of seemed to click my, my mind into, into the realization. Like then my brain came online, it seems like. I'm hearing voices, and at first it's kind of like another language, you know? I heard the water, I heard the people. I could tell there was stress in people's voices, so something had happened. Um, And then I realized it was me. Then it all came back. They told me what happened, and I had realized, I was like, holy shit, (laughs) did this really happen? And then I kind of remembered my struggle, you know, in the water. Yuri Vala is one of the few people in the world who can tell the story of his own drowning. On December 29, 2014, he miscalculated a line on the Jalisco, a small steep creek in Mexico. He had a prolonged recirculation in a powerful hydraulic, and after a few minutes of struggling underwater, lost all signs of life. Luckily for him, his friend Andy Perkel and the rest of his crew that day performed a quick live bait rescue and knew exactly how to revive him. Their story really provides a model for how CPR should be performed for drowning victims. There's a lot of content to cover here, so I've broken this story into two episodes. In part one, Yuri and Andy describe the sequence of the day's events, the accident, and his rescue from the water. In part two, we'll hear the specific details of his resuscitation. My goal with this story is for the listener to learn the best practices of drowning resuscitation. I'll be providing commentary as we go to emphasize these points. As a word of caution, this content may be disturbing for some listeners. So let's meet our guests and hear their story. So my name is Yuri Vala. 
I'm a lifetime skier, climber, mountain biker, and now kayaker. I, uh, I moved to the Southeast uh, about 15 years ago. I had to hang up my skis. I was a ski instructor out in Utah, and uh, I started kayaking, um, and it's became my passion every bit as much as skiing was. Hey, I'm Andy. I, I grew up in the southeastern U.S., spent some years living in Colorado, but I've traveled all over the world, including this accident was in Mexico. I've traveled to a number of places like that, Ecuador and um, Chile, also paddling. Andy and I had planned, my, my buddy Andy Perkel and a couple other folks, we planned a uh, trip to Mexico, very excited, a bunch of epic rivers down there. In Veracruz, Mexico, outside of Tlapacoyan is a popular whitewater destination for travelers. Um, there's a hostel there called Adventure Rec that almost everybody's traveled to that area has probably been there or stayed there. The rivers they intended to paddle, the Alsaseca and Jalacinco, form a natural pathway through the Sierra Madre mountain range from the central plateau of Mexico, draining east through basalt gorges to the Gulf of Mexico. There are some huge waterfalls along the way, including the third tallest waterfall that has been successfully navigated by kayak at 128 feet. It's an amazing landscape. On this trip, they stayed at the Adventure Rec Hostel in Tlapacoyan. I've never been paddling in Mexico, but this looks like a great base camp for a trip to this region. They have lodging, meals, shuttles, and as we hear later, they sometimes even provide high-speed rides to the nearest medical clinic if you screw up. There's also several archaeological sites near the town that might be worth a visit if you're ever traveling there. At one of these sites, many symbols were found which represent the triumph of the sun over the darkness of the underworld. So a fitting place for this story. The, the first day we paddled the Alsaseca for warm-up, it's the roadside section. And so that, that went really well. And so the next day we, um, you know, head out for the, for the Holocingo, you know, we, we'd gotten all the beta and we were the, with a crew of about six people, uh, four hard boaters, kayakers, and two OC1s, uh, guys we'd known from, you know, from the area. This group had what I thought was particularly good judgment and people showed an appropriate level of concern about coming around blind corners. And we knew that there were a few innocuous looking ledges that led into big drops and things like that. And so people's safety meters seemed like it was kind of in the right direction. Amazing river, you know, everything we, uh, <laughs> we, we had been looking for, um, you know, deep, deep gorge, beautiful scenery, hiking in through banana fields, basalt rock formations, and it's primary pool drop. It was mainly waterfalls, slides, um, and those were range from like, uh, you know, 10 to 40 feet. So it was a great day. Uh, we had a lot of fun, no incidents at all. And then we came to the kind of marquee drop on the run, which is, uh, which is Dungeon. It's a 40-foot drop, pretty sketchy entrance, and definitely dangerous in, in the landing zone. You know, we knew we were kind of towards the end of the run, and, you know, we decided against it. You know, we were a little bit bummed out that we didn't, <laughs> that we didn't run it, although it was, it was definitely the right decision. And I think uh, that was probably the first contributing factor, at least from, from my perspective, the mistakes that, that, that I made. 
because I was just so pumped about being there for one. And secondly, um, you know, I was a little bummed out. We didn't, we didn't run that. You know, in keeping with the good judgment that I mentioned before, the, uh, the group sort of took a look at it and we figured, Hey, we're going to bite this one off another day. And, um, we know that there's only a short distance left before the takeout. We were more concerned about recognizing the takeout than we were for any rapids between where we were and where we were going. It was that feeling that every paddler's had where, you know, you kind of are past the last crux. It's all like home free. You just don't do anything stupid. It was the sensation that, you know, the pressure's off. We come around a corner and we know there's something we should scout. And uh, the one guy had run it before said, this is worth a look. And, you know, it's probably a 10 foot spout that um, landed in a, you know, cauldron that was uh, teardrop shaped. And so the exit was smaller than the pool and the, the nature of the way that the boil and the aeration were working, there was an exit toward river right again up against a wall where the boil was still higher than the pool but it was a acceptable differential pretty pretty innocuous seeming drop right the river kind of necks in uh so it's kind of a pool coming into it and it takes a hard right turn and you know the whole river pours over about a uh a 10 foot drop with a really really heavy curtain and then the landing zone, you know, you kind of land on the, on the boil and paddle past that. And the drop is teardrop shape. So, you know, the majority of the drop is about 20 feet wide. And then the exit was probably 10 to 12. So it's a little constricted on, on the exit. Um, and it had, like I said, really aerated, massive boil line, which is tough to overcome um, on the left. A YouTube video is worth a thousand words, so if you're having trouble visualizing this drop, check out the link on our Facebook page to John Moore's video of the creek, with the rapid appearing just after the eight-minute mark. A screenshot of the rapid is also used as the cover photo for this episode. The crew set safety and took turns running the drop, with some mixed results. I swam and um, self-rescued, and then, you know, just pulled my gear. I wasn't totally happy with my run, so I, I wanted uh, redemption. I knew it was the last run of the day, um, the last real rapid, and I really wanted to squeeze the most out of the day. So we were just kind of sitting around. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take another run. Um, I'm sitting in my boat and I, I look back up river and I, Yuri was doing a thing that our paddling group has a joke about where like if you mess up a rapid walking back up to run it we always say that that's a terrible idea you know you never walk back up and do it again it'll be there the other the next day and you know the best strategy is to go home and let it really eat at you so that the next time you do a better job i kind of walked up uh put in and boofed it i kind of don't really remember what happened but flipped so it pulled me back in towards the curtain and my tail instantly got chundered down into the drop and pushed both me and the boat underwater. So I tried to, you know, I tried to struggle out kind of in the curtain. 
and it is such a tight little spot. I kept getting pulled behind it. And just the sheer force of the water, every time it hit the boat, it plowed it under the water, extremely powerful. And so a couple of times my, my stern was, you know, wound up behind, behind the waterfall. A couple of times got knocked around, so I bailed out of the boat and started swimming. The guy who was the single safety man hit him with rope and, you know, maybe 15 seconds passed and they, there was no positive effect. And I could see that he was, he, he was putting a lot of effort into his pull. So like, that's what I could see from the at water level. And I was like, this is different than it was before. So I, you know, hopped out awfully quick and got up there. I mean, Yuri's one of my closest friends. It, it kept recirculating me back, basically back into, um, you know, the, the, the pour over. So every time I was forced to the bottom, I, I would make it to the top every, every once in a while, but it became clear that the water was so aerated. Um, some of the breaths I was getting were foam. So, you know, in my mind, I'm just kind of ticking through the ways on how to get out of a hole. You know, these are all things that we know, right? <laughs> it's, you know, s swim out the left, swim out the right. That's not working ball up, hit the bottom, try to swim out the bottom. That I actually tried numerous times, but something just kept me, I think it might've been so rounded on, on the bottom. I just kept getting knocked back in. At one point I got on my boat to try to get extra flotation because it was clear that my PFD was not giving me the flotation I needed to get air. And more and more I was getting less and less air because of the aeration. The sequence went a little something like this. He was being pulled and he was trying to fight the river left boil. So we gave him slack and then he would go under the spout and he would go deep. And But he would surface and he would surface closer to river right, the river right exit where he needed to be. And then either he would pull on the rope or, you know, some of us would pull on the rope. Our whole team was evolving into the safety situation and he needed to be given more slack or somehow gotten over to the other side of the river. But the other side of the river was not – there wasn't like you could put a safety guy over there. It was a you know huge boulder. I mean it would have taken 10 minutes to get somebody to go up there. So he ends up circulating a bunch of times. He's pulling with all of his strength on rope and planing out under this very aerated water. You know, after about that first minute, minute 15-ish, the next 30 seconds, he started to lose his energy, and he went deep a couple more times, and that's where he really started to be underwater for a significant, you know, maybe then over the next 30 to 45 seconds, he was underwater half that time, and then he went limp. I had read a lot of uh, close calls on the river before, you know, a lot of trip reports. And people are always saying, you know, I, I knew I was going to die and I was thinking of my family. And that had never occurred to me that that was imminent. I was completely calm and thinking about how to get out of the situation and just going through everything that I knew on how to get out. And I, I didn't panic. You know, no one was more surprised than me to not have gotten out of there. <laughs> no one was more surprised than me that I drowned.
The last thing I remember, I had wrapped my arm all the way around, because I found myself getting really, really, really tired. So I wrapped my arm all the way around the rope and hoping that they could, you know, pull me out and I was grasping the rope best I could. Um, and that's, that, that's the last thing I remember. It seemed like everything moved in slow motion. You know, I could see everything. I could see the guys on the shore. We were actually, I was yelling to them what, what I'm gonna try to do. And then all of a sudden, boom, lights out. That's when the situation had to be evolved. You know, I hooked up probably the most athletic looking person in our group. And, you know, there's an obvious concern that we were creating two victims instead of one. The situation warranted it and I would do it again. But um, we hooked him up. We got him in there and we got a, you know, he grabbed Yuri and we got probably it took about 30 to 40 seconds. But we got a good pull, got him over to the river right area, right through the exit. And he was out of the cauldron. At this point, Yuri had been struggling in the water for about four minutes, then essentially underwater and unconscious for about two minutes. When he was pulled from the water, Andy described him as unresponsive, with grayish-blue color and no respiratory effort. We're going to leave Yuri hanging in limbo here for a little while. Before we hear about the resuscitation techniques in part two, I think it's worth taking a few minutes to try to explain the physiologic processes involved in drowning and in cardiac arrest in general. The treatment of it will make so much more sense if you have a solid understanding of what is happening to the heart, the lungs, and the brain in these scenarios. Let's start with one of the most common causes of death, cardiac arrest as a result of heart disease. Imagine you are walking down the street and you witness a middle-aged or older person suddenly clutch their chest and slump over. They are unresponsive and not breathing. In this case, there has likely been a sudden interruption to the normal organized beating of the heart from a heart attack or a heart arrhythmia. The oxygen level in the blood initially is still normal and good, but the blood is not circulating to the brain and other vital organs. So immediate chest compressions help to circulate the blood and quick defibrillation with an AED can reestablish the normal electrical rhythm. If the situation progresses, the oxygen level gradually falls and rescue breathing is also needed, but you have a few initial minutes where this is not the priority. This is one reason why compression-only CPR is taught to the general public as the normal approach to cardiac arrest. The physiology of drowning is fundamentally different. In most drownings, the heart is healthy and initially functioning normally. As the person is submerged underwater, the oxygen level in the blood gradually drops. The heart rate increases in response to this, still circulating blood. The brain becomes impaired first and the victim loses consciousness and may have limited or no respiratory effort. As oxygen levels continue to drop, the heart becomes more and more stressed. The heart rate may slow and pulses become weaker or absent. At some point, the brain becomes irreversibly damaged. Generally in the 5 to 15 minute range, the heart and circulation of the blood become more and more impaired and eventually seize as well. So at any phase of this, especially in the first few minutes of the process, restoring oxygen to the blood with rescue breathing is the priority. Chest compressions become necessary too as the heart function and circulation collapses. The situation can be a little fuzzier when you have someone with heart disease who drowns. Imagine a 55-year-old raft trip customer, smoker, sedentary lifestyle, 
whose daily exercise routine is walking from the couch to the fridge and back. He falls in the river and struggles underwater. He may have both issues going on right up front, the low oxygen level from submersion and respiratory arrest, and abnormal heart function from stress on the heart muscle and a resultant arrhythmia. The CPR approach is the same, with ventilations and compressions, but this is someone that may be more likely to have a shockable heart rhythm and to benefit from an AED. Some rafting outfitters with large trips on popular rivers may have these available. In all of these scenarios, it's important to be able to quickly recognize the arrest state. The simplest way to recognize it is a person that is unresponsive with absent or abnormal breathing. If you see these two things together, there is a very high likelihood that this person is in cardiac arrest and you should immediately start CPR. You don't even wait to confirm a pulse check. And don't worry about being wrong. Studies have found no significant harm to the victim in the misapplication of CPR. If the person was just sleeping deeply or just incredibly drunk, they're gonna let you know really quickly that they don't need the chest compressions and mouth-to-mouth -mouth breathing. The more likely thing, however, is that you are right and they need to be immediate help you are provided. CPR is such an important topic to learn as a whitewater paddler. I think the first place to start is with a CPR course. These are widely available, inexpensive, and just take a few hours of your time. They typically have an online component that you can complete at home, then a one to two hour hands-on skills session. The Red Cross offers the adult CPR course for about $80 total, and a schedule can be found with a quick search of their website. wrap this up so we can get on to part two. We've got to find out how they pulled Yuri back. Before we go, I want to ask for your help. The whitewater paddling community has a problem that we need to confront head on. Paddling can be one of the most life-affirming pursuits, but if you stay deep in this game long enough, there's a decent chance you'll encounter the other side of it as well. We've all seen too many tragic accidents in this sport. Risk and the responsible management of it is an integral component of running hard whitewater and often one of the most compelling aspects of it. It will never be risk-free. My purpose with this podcast is to put this risk problem in a spotlight and help us all figure out how to mitigate it to some degree. This is one small tribute to all those friends we've lost on the river. I hope by spreading this educational content about whitewater rescue, we can start making a difference. So far, this show is being produced ad-free, and I hope to keep it up as long as I have the motivation. The part I need help with is spreading this stuff far and wide in the whitewater community. It's an easy task on your end. Just check out our Facebook site, The Safety Break. Click like or follow and share it wherever you can to help promote this mission. I'll be more motivated to produce quality content if I feel like it's being consumed and making a difference. There's also links from the site to help you learn more about each episode's content. For this episode, I have links to help you find CPR courses, the American Heart Association and Wilderness Medical Society guidelines for drowning resuscitation, and a link to a full video of the Halasingo so you can better visualize what's happening in this story. Thanks once again for listening, and I hope to see you on the river. Don't forget to listen to part two.
Thank you for listening to The Safety Break, the Whitewater Rescue Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and click follow on our Facebook page so that we know that you're out there. I'm also looking for more stories. If you know of an interesting non-fatal river accident or rescue, send me a few details by email, safetybreak at gmail.com. It doesn't have to be dramatic or life-threatening, just something that we all might be able to learn from. I'll see if we can turn it into an episode. Stay safe out there, and I hope to see you on the river.